Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 85. Continuing on with Part 2 of the history of the historic or the preservation movement. So as the United States recovered from the Great Depression and entered World War II, the documentation programs languished. In the early 1950s, the HABS program was reactivated. By this time, using architecture students and historians on summer teams overseen by architecture professors and historic preservationists. Through their efforts since then, over 40,000 historic structures and sites have been recorded in over 550,000 measured drawings drawn and large-scale format black and white photographs taken. The original drawings are housed, serviced, and maintained at the Library of Congress. The collection is recorded on microfilm and microfiche and is available at more than 100 libraries across the country. A digital archive accessible on the Internet also was developed by the Library of Congress to enhance the use of this valuable resource. A companion program, the Historic American Engineering Record, was established in 1969 in an agreement with the American Society of Civil Engineers, whereas HABS focuses on endangered historic buildings of note, HAER, records the technology of engineering involved in canals, railroads, bridges, and industrial or manufacturing sites. In 1989, the NPS added a new technology-based system of (coughs) recordation known as Cultural Resources Geographic Information Systems, also known as CRGIS, This system utilizes state-of-the-art technologies based on global positioning systems, GPS, geographic information systems, mapping capabilities, and remote sensing technologies to record and document in a non-invasive manner historic and architectural sites within the National Park System, as well as those managed by state historic preservation officers and tribal historic preservation officers. Rounding out the NPS's documentation programs, in 2000, the Historic American Landscape Survey survey joined HABS, HAER, and CRGIS to add a larger dimension of landscape to the NPS's documentation efforts. The goal of HALS is to record historic landscapes in the United States and its territories through measured drawings and interpretive drawings written histories, and large format black and white photographs and color photographs. The subjects can be either natural or designated landscapes. So these these organizations' programs are now under the auspices of the NPS's Heritage Documentation Programs. Most of these documentation efforts continue through the preparation of measured drawings, written histories, data imaging, and photographs by students individually or in teams, either through college coursework or in summer programs. Municipalities, historical societies, preservation organizations, and industry often share the cost of the work. The historic sites enacted in 1935 
as amended through December 16, 2016, and codified in Title 54 of the United States Code, is a national policy to preserve for public use historic sites, buildings, and objects of national significance for the inspiration and benefit of the people of the United States. The Act has been amended more than eight times, most recently dividing it into four separate sections titled American Antiquities, Policy and Administration Provisions, National Park System Advisory Board, National Park Service Advisory Council, and Commemoration of Former Presidents. The Act's policies mandate preservation of documents, sites, and buildings, surveying of historic sites, and determination of which possesses exceptional value, restoration of sites of national historical significance were deemed desirable, erection of commemorative plaques, and operation and management of sites acquired for the benefit of the public. The historic survey program fostered by the 1935 Act is considered the program (coughs) of the present-day National Register of Historic Places. So in 1949, the National Trust for Historic Preservation um, had leaders who saw the need for a national organization to support local preservation efforts. Inspired by its English namesake, obviously, Britain's National Trust, an act of Congress in 1949 established the National Trust for Historic Preservation. With the purpose of linking preservation efforts of the NPS and the federal government with activities at the local level and in the private sector. In the early years, founders of the Trust envisioned an organization whose primary purpose would be the acquisition and administration of historic sites of national significance while encouraging public participation in their preservation. In 1956, the Trust evolved into a membership organization, and in 1957, it acquired its first property, Woodlong Plantation in Northern Virginia. The trust portfolio has expanded to full stewardship, for example, ownership and operation, of 10 sites plus co-stewardship of an additional 10 sites, which are sites owned or leased by the trust and operated by an independent nonprofit organization. One of these could be... uh, the City Tavern in Philadelphia that used to be the City Tavern before it closed last year in 2020. So in 1949 and 1954, a new act was put in place, the Housing Act. So after World War II, the federal government saw the need to stimulate the national economy following, following almost two decades of economic depression and war. Many urban areas were old and blighted, and a stimulus was needed to encourage new investment in cities. The Housing Act of 1949 and the Housing Act of 1954 were meant to provide such a stimulus by making federal funds available to purchase and clear deteriorated urban neighborhoods. In other words, urban renewal. Federal officials believe the first step in redevelopment was to clear blighted areas, and make cleared sites available for new investment. From the perspective of city officials at the time, old buildings were perceived as blight largely to their age. The past was no longer being ignored, 
but now it was being purposely destroyed. Government leaders who had lived throughout the Depression had a simple philosophy. Old was bad and new was good. And what a sad time this was. Slum clearance and the construction of new housing for displaced residents were inconsistently and unfairly applied strategies for redevelopment at the time. Large swaths of inner cities were targeted for demolition, and only a fraction of new housing in the form of housing projects in designated areas could accommodate those who were displaced, forcing many into overcrowded adjacent neighborhoods. Overwhelmingly, this relocation targeted African-American residents who had recently migrated north of post-war employment and who were faced with very few options for acceptable places to live. Segregation was openly practiced in all parts of the United States, but it was most rigorously enforced in the industrialized cities of the North. The goal of urban renewal funding was to encourage investors to purchase the cleared urban sites at low cost and launch redevelopment projects. However, in most instances, private investment was not drawn to these areas in the central cities, but went instead to vacant sites on the urban fringe, where land was inexpensive and regulations were light. As a result of this urban renewal demolition, cities were left with large vacant areas where older black neighborhoods had once stood. An interesting case study from this period involves both the negative impact of demolition and the positive value of redevelopment. Between 1949 and 1954, in the former African-American neighborhood known as Black Bottom, just east of downtown Detroit, a large swath of aging housing stock was cleared. The goal was to provide new housing based on the concept of landscaped superblock that included both low-rise and high-rise housing, a neighborhood school, and a shopping center. The innovative plan, which was created by planner Ludwig Heimersheimer and was included multiple housing types designed by architect Ludwig Mies van der Roche, resulted in a unique redevelopment plan as known as Lafayette Park. It proved to be a mixed blessing for the city's residents. Deteriorated housing at the site was cleared in the 1950s, displacing 1,900 families, but fewer than one-third were rehoused in public housing. Others crowded into the adjacent slums. Although the new housing constructed in Lafayette Park was beyond the economic reach of most displaced residents, it attracted new middle-income black and white residents alike. After more than 50 years of occupancy, Lafayette Park has achieved the rare success of establishing itself as an attractive, well-planned, mixed-income, and racially integrated community in downtown Detroit. In 2015, Lafayette Park earned a listing on the National Historic Landmark and was cited as one of the first and most intact examples of a successful urban renewal residential redevelopment. So 1956 through 1966, the Mission 66 program. From 1931 until 1949, visitation of the country's national parks increased tenfold without a corresponding increase in parks, funding, or facilities alike. 
After the Depression and World War II, visitors flocked to parks in droves, overloading parking lots and inadequate visitor facilities, and threatening irreparable damage to the parks themselves. In 1956, the NPS initiated the Mission 66 program to dramatically expand visitor services in national parks with the intent to complete it by the 50th anniversary of the agency itself 10 years later. With a secure budget, the NPS began to repair and rebuild park roads, bridges, and trails, and construct new facilities. Mission 66 was viewed as a program that would both elevate standards of comfort and efficiency and conserve natural resources. A primary component of the program was to build visitor centers at parks to provide orientation, as well as learning and interpretation opportunities. A successor program called Parkscape extended the program until 1972, the year of the Yellowstone National Park Centennial. The complete work began in the prior decade. Concurrent with these national efforts toward visitor enhancements was a program to recreate Jefferson National Expansion Memorial in St. Louis to serve as a symbol of national recovery after World War II. With submissions from 182 architects, the judges unanimously selected a design by Eero Sarian and Associates for a 630-foot-high stainless steel arch as a monument to westward expansion in America. Unlike this memorial and its iconic arch, not all of the National Park's visitor centers have successfully stood the test of time. A controversial case in point is the Cyclorama Center in Gettysburg National Military Park. Richard Neutra's unique concrete and glass Mission 66 Cyclorama building was created in 1961 as part of the commemoration of the centennial of the Civil War. In the 1990s, after funding to rehabilitate the structure was denied, the NBS sought to remove the modern structure from the Gettysburg battlefield site under the premise that it was an interruption to the historic landscape. In 1998, the keeper of the National Register of Historic Places determined the Cyclorama building was eligible for listing in the National Register of Historic Places. And in 1999, the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts opposed its demolition. The building was not added to the National Register, but courts ordered further study in 2010 to find alternatives to demolition. In 2012, the court order study determined that the best course of action would be to demolish the Cyclorama building that has stood in the park for 50 years. So in March 2013, the building was finally demolished. 1961 and 1962, Jane Jacobs and Rachel Carson. In 1961, Jane Jacobs wrote one of the most controversial and influential books on urban planning, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. The book's famous first sentence set the stage for what followed. This book is an attack on current city planning and rebuilding. In New York City, Jacobs fought head-to-head with city planners to insist they recognize the value of existing urban neighborhoods. She described how older buildings were an important part of the residents' sense of community. 
representing a fresh perspective. Jacobs argued that the intrinsic value of the existing fabric of the city's historic neighborhoods and asserted that their preservation was more important than imposing new development in these areas. Her book was an important catalyst in stirring the public's recognition that more than simply having individual landmark structures, preservation details with protecting the very fabric of communities. And the preservation can be an important and powerful tool in community revitalization. So we're seeing it from two, two, two angles uh, merging into one. To complement Jacob's book, in 1962, after four years of meticulous research, Rachel, Rachel Carson published her equally controversial and influential book, Silent Spring. She realized that the nation's environment was being despoiled. And, it's in, and in particular, she documented the detrimental effects of the environment on the discriminant use of pesticides, specifically DDT. Although met with fierce opposition by chemical companies, her book spurred a reversal and revival of national pesticide policy, inspired an environmental movement, one that paralleled the preservation movement, and led to the creation of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. 1962. The NPS's responsibility for federally owned historic sites is quite a large one, I must say. Particularly meaning, for example, is Prestidio, located in the northwest center of San Francisco, adjacent to the San Francisco Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. The 1,480-acre um, site had been a large and important military installation for many years. The Spanish established the f <coughs> it first as a military outpost in 1776. The U.S. Army took control over it in 1846, as one of the spoils of the Mexican-American War. Its location at a strategic point where San Francisco Bay meets the Pacific Ocean was ideal for a military base. So during World War II, the site was crucial as the location of the Western Defense Command headquarters. In 1962, the Presidio, while still under military control, was designated, designated a National Historic Landmark District, three decades after the base was no longer considered critical for military use and was decommissioned and made part of the Golden Gate National Research and Recreation Area under control of the NPS. With this change in administration, the NPS inherited a site with almost 800 buildings in a city-like setting that also included expansive forest and natural areas. The Presto Trust was established to administer care and plan for the park's future, but its support was especially challenged because federal funding was set to expire in 2012. With these changes, it had become a huge responsibility for the NPS, and the Presidio Trust both of which have stretched their resources to the limit with this one project alone. However, a major financial success for the Trust was a controversial deal signed with Lucasfilm, which built its new headquarters of Industrial Light and <coughs> Magic and LucasArts 
at that site, on the site of the former Letterman Hospital. In 1995, another tenant that moved into the former Letterman Hospital was the Thoreau Center for Sustainability. This center had led the way in efforts to introduce goals for sustainability to caretakers of the Prestidio site at the San Francisco region. The center combines the twin goals of preserving the park's historic resources and fostering a sustainable future. A remarkable accomplishment is the Prestidio reached its goal of self-sufficiency before expiration of the federal, federal support. So let's move on to 1963, the Penn Station demolition. Demolition in 1963 of the iconic and impressive Penn Station, a Beaux-Arts-style 1910 transportation hub in Midtown Manhattan, dealt a real blow to preservation and served as a wake-up call to take action against further loss of New York's urban heritage. Mentioning the site still triggers strong opinions, but it also reminds us that the loss of this landmark served as a catalyst for the architectural preservation movement in New York City and the United States alone. The New York City Landmarks Law, adopted two years later in 1965, gave protection to the other landmark train station in Manhattan. The 1903 Grand Central Terminal currently plans are to review and revamp what remains of the original Penn Station underground passageways and platforms and develop them into modern transit hubs with enhanced rail capacity. So let's go to 1964, the Venice Charter. Drawn up by a group of conservation uh, professionals in Venice in 1964, the Venice Charter for the Conservation and Restoration of Monuments and Sites is a set of guidelines that provides an international framework for the conservation and restoration of historic buildings. Primarily addressing buildings, the Charter did not con- <coughs> consider site context, historic landscapes, and gardens. The concept even for reversibility, or social or financial issues. Even with its shortcomings, it has been very influential and has become a historic document in itself. Let's move to 1966, the National Historic Preservation Act. Working with the United States Conference of Mayors in 1996, the National Trust for Historic Preservation published a book titled With Heritage So Rich Through a Perceptive Photography of Our American Architectural Heritage. This provocative and influential publication illustrated a great deal of number of significant historic structures that have been lost. The book followed this visual essay for a proposal for an expanded role for preservation supported by the federal government. The report provides recommendations for accomplishing this goal, including a comprehensive survey of historically and architecturally significant buildings, sites, structures, districts, and objects, as well as their inclusion in a national register. The report also recommended the formation of a partnership between federal, state, and local governments to deal specifically with the preservation by establishing a National Advisory Council on Historic Preservation and designated preservation officers in every state, as well as a program of financial incentives for the preservation to balance the incentives already available for new construction and demolition.
with heritage so rich, was rich itself in ideas and did not much to did, did not do too much to awaken the preservation consciousness and consciousness at consciousness at all levels but perhaps its most important impact was that its recommendations led to the passage of the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 the most important historic preservation legislation ever passed by congress the act included a number of significant provisions it established the National Register of Historic Places, encouraged the concept of locally regulated historic districts, authorized enabling legislation to find preservation activities, mandated the selection of qualified state historic preservation officers, it established the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, and stipulated that federal preservation programs and policies would rely on the volunteer cooperation of owners of historic properties and not interfere with their private ownership rights. The significance of the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 cannot be underestimated. Until that time, most preservation activities had focused on established landmarks. Local historical organizations primarily were interested in the restoration and maintenance of structures with only great significance. Those structures were often converted to use as local museums. Other structures received a market, a marker for recognition. Also, at that time, only a handful of historic districts existed. Such districts were difficult to establish as courts did not support local regulations imposing aesthetic constraints on property owners. Furthermore, local communities interested in preservation had almost no ties with preservation activities at the state and federal levels. So, as a result of the 1966 Act, historic preservation became a more integral part of the American society expanding interest and involvement at a level never previously ever imagined. In addition, when Congress passed the National Historic Preservation Act, the National Trust for Historic Preservation broadened, broadened its mission beyond administering historic sites and offering programs, educational resources, and advisories. So that ends our part two of the history of the preservation movement. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing out. Thanks for listening.